Felix is going to run point as your comms today for the interview. Okay. In case Great. I get out of line. That's right. He's going to escort me out. Yes. Hopefully one of us will get in trouble for this interview uh, with our <laughs> yeah, yeah. respective government. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> You're listening to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. So the other day, I went on a walk up the street to visit a neighbor, kind of like Mr. Rogers, but without the cardigan. Here we are. We are delighted to be here for many reasons. But we Jacques Pildou is the Swiss today. ambassador to the United States. And he and I are sitting in his formal, modern dining room in the official ambassador's residence, which includes a really large plot of open land behind it right in the middle of Washington, D.C. And it's got just a stunning view. I've walked by this property countless times, but this is the first time I'm actually past the gate. Uh, We are on one of the few hills from whence one can see the, uh, the, the Washington Monument. And the urban legend is that it was one of the places that had been picked uh, to, to, to build the capital, and then they realized it was too far away from the swamp. Ambassador Pete Liu first joined the Swiss Foreign Service in 1987. And since then, he has worked all over the world, from Kenya to Rwanda to Saudi Arabia. Diplomacy can be a pretty stressful line of work, so the ambassador often turns to nature for relief, particularly bird watching. And so two weeks ago, uh, I was looking for the morning wobbler. It's difficult and you have to be extremely lucky to be at the right spot, right moment. So I drove four hours. I was there so starting at two o'clock in the morning. I was there at six o'clock when, when you get a chance to, to, to hear it. Got my pictures of the morning wobbler. It was the last one I didn't have, you know, from the region. So it's a little bit like a very peaceful form of hunting. It's hunting yeah. without killing. But it's the same instinct. And I, I do imagine it's the same, you know, release yeah. of adrenaline. Yeah. Once oh, my God, you know, the morning wobbler got it. You know, yeah, so. I bet it is. Yeah. yeah. Is that how it felt? Like just euphoria when you got Oh, it? yes, indeed. Yeah. Oh, yes, nice. indeed. So if you could take me back to the first day you saw the property here, the ambassador's residence in Washington, can you describe what you saw and what your initial reaction was? I was amazed by the the beauty of the, the whole setting, the, the building is extraordinary, the view is fantastic. I was also struck by the fact that we had a very big plot, I don't know exactly how many acres, but it's pretty big, and that it looked like a golf course. And I don't like golf courses. They look good, but they are ecological disasters. So as we heard in last week's episode, turns out that grass lawns are total wastelands from a biodiversity perspective. They need one to one and a half inches of rain per week, and they don't give much back. They don't support pollinators like birds or bees, and they usually require a whole bunch of chemicals to look good. My feeling was really we need to start doing something about it because in the meantime, having been active in in, uh, nature and conservation for, for, for so many years, I knew that it's not just about national laws or international treaties, it's about local efforts. And I realized that I had the unique opportunity, being for a limited numbers, number of years, like the, the master of the house uh, on, on this plot, to change something and to try to serve as an example. It's not just about policy. It's about creating islands, as many as possible, and even a small plot, even your small garden in front of your small townhouse can make a difference. 
because it's one small island from which insects and birds and other animals can hop to the next one. I know I often have this feeling like there's nothing I can do individually on climate change. It sort of feels, I feel very disempowered, frustrated. But what you're saying is that there are things we can do, and if we all do them, then it does become collective action. It's all a matter of scaling it up. But before you start scaling it up, you need, you need to demonstrate the feasibility of the concept. So my first reaction was to stop using pesticides. And I told the gardening team, uh, there will be no pesticides on this property, and we will see what happens. And of course, the first reaction of the gardeners was, but it, it's not going to look that good. And I said, well, it all depends what you consider looking good. And then I started researching. And there was this beautiful program by Audubon Society of America, they have this fantastic website where you can go put in your uh, zip code and they will tell you what to plant in order to recreate the biodiversity as it was before human intervention or at least uh, before industrial agriculture and before golf courses. I then started a dialogue with my gardening team to say what could we do and that's, that's how it started. Were there other challenges, I don't know, from the neighbors, you know, people like me? Or other people who maybe just didn't get it at first? That's one of the advantages of enjoying diplomatic immunity, you know. So, so, so no, frankly, the neighbors, I, I think, in the beginning didn't realize what was happening. And at some point, I, w I was with a gardening team in the garden. And someone speaks to me uh, from the other side of the fence and says, are you the ambassador? And I go, yeah. Uh, do you realize you have such a huge plot and you don't have bees? And I said, Yes, I do realize, and what you propose to do, and he says, uh, I'm the head of the Beekeepers Association, can we use your plot? And I said, of course. Now we have the, the bees, we are the biggest beekeeper in Washington, D.C., and we see the insects coming back. I mean, this year, for the first time, uh, we've, had, we've had so many fireflies, and fireflies are a very important ecological indicator. The fireflies are the first to go, and the last to come back. Uh, they are very, very sensitive to, to changes in the environment. And we've had uh, monarch butterflies. I was so glad to see monarch butterflies because, because they are dis disappearing fast. But as soon as you give nature a chance, as soon as you create an island, there is a potential for them to come back. On today's show, we're going outside and going to get our hands dirty, building on last week's conversation about how to save the planet one backyard at a time. Now, normally diplomatic compounds like this are off limits to the public, but Ambassador Pitlu has welcomed us here to prove what is possible. And for him, it's about way more than gardening. It's funny because when we were dreaming of inviting you on this show, we were worried that you wouldn't come because you're busy with important matters of state. But I can tell listening to you that this is an important matter of state. Uh, a, a matter of, for all states and for the international community to deal with now, not in the 22nd century, it will be too late. So we can't just wait. All right, let's take a walk if that's all right. Coming up, the ambassador is going to show us how he transformed the once perfect lawn outside his residence into a less perfect wildlife preserve. And he'll share advice on how all of us can help conserve our little piece of the planet, one lawn at a time. Stick around.
Can you believe this view? Yeah, it's amazing. Okay. Yeah, go on, tell, tell us what you're seeing. Yeah, I'm seeing uh, a break in the trees that perfectly frames the Washington Monument. Beautiful big trees here. How many trees did you plant? Around 20 so far. So uh, there is this big tree here that I just didn't have the heart to take it down. It should yeah. be here. It's a Japanese tree. It oh, has no reason gorgeous. to be here, but it's so gorgeous. I just couldn't take it down. Wow. But what's interesting is the mix. We have pines, we have oaks. And so here you see on the right, the test dry meadows that we've been creating. And then we'll walk down where the wet meadows is. And the idea is to transform the whole slope here that anyway, we never really used it. And you can already Just. see that the grass has more going on. Of course. From uh, of course. So there's more, it's not just plain grass at this it's point. It's not plain grass yeah. anymore. Uh, it has a lot of, uh, lots of clovers. Yeah, clovers. Yeah. yeah, that is definitely something that uh, insects love a lot. So we had a, an expert we interviewed for this show who is a wildlife expert who helps people try to transform the ratio of their yards. So it's, it's often 90% grass, 10% other, yep. like trees and bushes, and he's yep. trying to flip it, you know, so that it's more a greater percentage. And that's exactly the idea. And so that's, this is the reason why we've been planting shrubs, but they need time to grow. Right. And you might have noticed there is this ungainly pile of uh, dead wood, and that is also something that's really important because it gives uh, it gives the opportunity for many insects, especially for the much endangered wild bees, carpenter bees, burrowing bees, to survive. So which this is the debris from the yard. It's the debris, debris from the yard, yeah. and instead of uh, burning it right. or I don't know whatever, we try to keep quite quite a large proportion of it to create. Also islands of, uh, it's very good for all the worms, all the, uh, and that is maybe the most problematic aspect when you're dealing with the neighbors, because yeah, it's not necessarily quite nice to, to, to look at. But once you know what it is and appreciate yeah, yeah, that yeah. it's filled, filled with life, Indeed. then I think you see it a little differently. I'm most excited about this because every year we go to, we, we buy a ton of mulch for our little tiny row house yeah. yard. Doug, the expert we interviewed said, stop yeah. doing that, stop just doing use, that. use your, your leaves. Yeah, of course. Exactly. And so I'm super excited to argue about this with my husband for and three I, hours and win. That's my goal, is to win this Oh, you like to win too. Okay, yeah, no, no, I, I understand that. You know, the, and by the way, the, the leaves, it's so leaves. important to leave them, especially in the first three weeks. Okay. Before you mulch them, because, because in the first three weeks, that's when they are really feeding all the earthworms for the winter. And so if you take them away every day, because it's, un it's ungainly looking, right. and it is, it's, it's exactly what one shouldn't do. Huh. So you leave the leaves for the first three to four weeks, then you can, you can mulch them. But it's all, everything, it's it's all awesome. things that we, one, one needs I to learn. I love because it's giving me an excuse to not rake the leaves as much and not Did you really need an excuse, away. did you? Okay. I, no, I already did that, but now I can tell my neighbors, you know. <laughs> yeah, that this is about the environment. That I'm just. And, and I'm person. sorry today, my, my, my cottontails seem to be on strike because I have lots of cottontails. Lots of rabbits, oh. Yeah, okay. rabbits, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but it's I a little bit some, too hot. Uh, I don't know what if those are butterflies or some no, kind of insect. Uh, no, they're, um, they're dragonflies. Dragonflies. The dragonflies are coming back too. Nice. The dragonflies are coming back too. That's so shall cool. we, shall we yes, walk down? Yeah. yeah. Sounds. You can always count on the cicadas. Oh, the cicadas, we had them. Mm -hmm. And so here on this particular pine tree, I've been working with the uh, city of Washington, trying to, um, to get the first ever eastern screech owl mm. to nest on Swiss territory. 
but so far we've been we haven't been successful it would be an Adele spot but but so far so so we installed this uh, nesting oh, box and it's and it's specific for the eastern uh, eastern screech owl has anyone ever visited that you know yes of? yes i saw one eastern screech owl uh, in, in, i was so happy oh. about she stayed two days and and, and went she had maybe, somewhere to be or maybe or maybe she didn't find a mate because here in the city, it, right. it's very uncommon. So you need to get a critical mass of the screech yeah, of owls. Course, yeah, of course. But it would be, I mean, that, that would be my dream. I mean, if I could get an eastern screech owl, a Swiss one, yeah. uh, that, <laughs> that would be would nice. Be awesome. Looking uh, out at this, and we've got the meadow here. We've got, you know, 50 beehives down there. This, the box waiting for the, the nest waiting for the screech owl. Can you just share one word or a few words that come to mind for how you feel? Emotional. <laughs> I feel emotional about that because I think that we, we are really trying to set an example for for what everyone could do. So as you can see, these are typical uh, dry meadows because of course the water doesn't accumulate on a, on the slope. Mm. So so you cannot plant it a wet meadow here. It's, it has to be a dry meadow. Yeah. The bees love it. So do the birds. Right now we've been planting sunflowers. The American goldfinches they love the sunflowers. I mean. I've been photographing all seven woodpecker species in this plot. Really? All seven of them, yeah, which is incredible. They don't all live here, but all, all seven of them have been here. Huh, and you've got them all? Of course. <laughs> I've lost count, but I've definitely seen and photographed more than 80 species in this garden. Species of birds? Of birds. Wow. Only the birds. Wow. Only the birds, yeah. yeah. Huh. Which is not bad. It's not bad. Can you explain uh, to the listener what we're approaching here? So the, there is a row of uh, bee hives, bee houses, around uh, 15 of them, and we have other ones behind the, the meadows. Right now we, we, we are well over a million. Hmm. We probably have a million, 300, 400,000 uh, bees. Wow, and, and um, so colorful, which is nice. Yeah, and, and so <laughs> they, they are being collected by the beekeepers association every time someone calls because there is a swarm of bees in there they come and collect them and then bring them for a political asylum uh in in the in the residence of the swiss ambassador and there is a whole art of how you combine combine the swarms without them yeah. fighting each other and if you discover a swarm that doesn't have a, a, a queen, how do you combine it with an already existing swarm that's living here? And then there is also, how do you make sure that they don't fly back to where they came from? Because bees, if you take them from a distance of less than four miles away, they will always fly back to where they were. Really? They have this very interesting technique that they bring the swarm into a bee house and then they put branches in front of the exit. And because there are branches in front of the exit, the bees are disoriented and so they reset their GPS. And once they have uh, reset their GPSs, they will always come back to this place and not to the place that was uh, on the other side. Wow. But they are all tricks that I never heard about. It's incredible. And, uh, bees, I think like, they're an amazing... I mean, you can learn a lot about diplomacy, am I right? From oh, yes. bees, because they work as a collective. Indeed. They would kill each other if you would put them in the same house. So they put them in the same house but at different levels and, and they put newspapers between the two levels. And by the time the bees have eaten their way through the newspapers, they are used to, to each other and they belong to the same swamp. It's amazing. Wow. But I, I, I never knew all these things. I've been learning a lot. Yeah, we can see above the 
bee houses just a, a sort of riot. Uh, yeah. I mean, a civilized riot, I guess. And in, the, in the beginning, they used to uh, to go and uh, drink in the swimming pool, which was very bad uh, because uh, many of them drowned. And so we have created this uh, this pond that's now behind you. Can't see the pond. Oh. And we create also a bee beach. It's called a bee beach. And the bee beach is a very gentle slope that goes into the pond so that they can fly there. And they drink, believe it or not, each one of these hives needs in the summer four gallons a day. They drink a lot. I, I almost wish more people could see this. And I know that's a little naive because you do have security concerns and it's not your house, right? It's your people's house. So how do you get more people to see what we're seeing so that uh, it spreads? But first of all, we are extremely happy about the opportunity to talk about the project and to show it on, on different shows and, and to have uh, journalists speak about it. And on the other hand, what we do with the neighborhood is uh, when we have the yard sale for the honey, we open the gates here and we let people come in and we have uh, people from the embassy explaining what we're doing nice. and explaining great. the concept. So. Are you going to do that again this year? Of course. Okay, of course. put it on my calendar. Because yep, yep. I remember there was a furious thing on the listservs, the neighborhood listservs, about how quickly the honey sold out. And I, I definitely had, had... After After half an hour, we had to realize that we had to limit the sale to one jug a a person people were hoarding yeah because 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 it was it was going out so fast yeah i mean these neighbors they can be competitive yeah just let's oh, put they it that were way indeed competitive the the sale was starting at nine o'clock and by 8 30 there was there was a queue of 200 yards of people when waiting it, for them it I feels mean, cooler out here than it does at my house okay. how's that possible okay so I, I'm, well, that's that's absolutely obvious wherever you are if you are in a green area, the temperatures will, on average, on a very hot day, be 20 Fahrenheit less if there is green. I mean, modern cities are heat traps. They're actually heat traps. And, and one of the things that we have to do to fight global warming and to make our cities habitable again, especially if you think about some cities further south, it's to have more and more green spaces. And you really feel the difference. Yeah. You really do feel the difference. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can feel it here. I yeah. mean. I mean, if you're on my terrace, which is a, a heat trap made of concrete, yeah. the difference is really palpable. Huh. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to show us while we're out? Tell Alexander to come over. Alexander is, is a professional gardener. He's been working for a very long time around the, around the city. He comes from Salvador and he's been passionate from the beginning. He, he loved the idea of... Uh, changing the... Uh, so he from I the see. beginning was on... Yeah, he was on board. Yes, he was on board. Yeah. He really was. Nice to meet you. And he's been on the, on the, on the gardening team uh, for, for, for many, many years and, and he knows so much more about plants than I do that he's probably uh, the person to interview. Coming up, we're going to talk with Alexander, one of the gardeners on staff here who will testify firsthand to what it was like to try to keep up this property before it became a wildlife oasis. We're back at the Swiss Ambassador's residence in Washington, D.C., where the lawn has been totally reimagined to support more life, including the life of the people who work on it full time. Uh, my name is Alex Bonilla. I've been here with the Switzerland Embassy for about 10 years, and it's been a huge impact when Ambassador Peter Lube arrived here. You know, we stopped using herbicides and chemicals on the grass, on the lawn, because, I mean, this basically, you can see it's a lot of clover, a lot of you know, uh, 
things and then I create kind of meadows in between just to the bees also take advantage of that hmm. you know and you know it's, it's, it's been grateful very grateful to, to cool. have this so and you've then, seen the full spectrum right uh, exactly. of like perfectly yes. golf course lawn and having to take care of that yes it's, yeah. it's been, been di different so so I know you need to get back to work and so does the ambassador but can you describe what the difference is like if we were to go back in a time machine and be on this property 10 years ago when you first started what's the difference in how it would look and also how it would feel and how your day would would look like the work that you do i don't probably won't go back to where i was you know stop using chemicals and, and things like that which is not good for me for my health for everybody else you know who's doing gardening so one so. change it sounds like is that you are less personally exposed you and your colleagues are less exposed to dangerous chemicals correct that's a big improvement how does it look or feel differently than it did 10 years ago well, it was more, uh, you know, like you said, if it was a golf course, it was more maintenance, more more like uh, the aspect of the lawn that needs to be neat and stuff like that. So I was not really happy using chemicals and things, or especially on the grounds, which have about six acres of, of grass. So, six acres of grass, that's so, a lot, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's not very easy to maintain. So it's, it's better just to keep it like that natural. Well, this it, is helpful because we had talked about how transitioning it was quite labor intensive and expensive but it sounds like once you get there is it less labor intensive yes it is thank you right, you're welcome it. thanks thank you you're maybe something that i i i should uh, i should add is that what we are doing here is actually consistent with switzerland's policy we are trying and we have a clear mandate by the government to try and raise the awareness for the environmental uh, challenges. Uh, Switzerland is not perfect, but we are really trying hard. And so it's an official message, which means also that, because uh, it's a question that was asked, um, I was asked a few a few weeks ago, so, and what if your uh, successor doesn't like the, the, the biodiversity garden? Well, no choice, no choice. The biodiversity garden is here to stay. Because, because this is the future. This, the, the future is to try and work for biodiversity. I've heard a phrase that you use sometimes, environmental diplomacy. And that sounds like that's what you mean, right? Environmental diplomacy is really trying to push on one side awareness, of course, for all the challenges that our environment is facing, but also trying to push the technologies that will help us deal with it. Yeah. Clean tech in particular, carbon capture technologies, all things that can be very good for the economy and at the same time very good for the environment. So it's not just a losing game where you have to make a choice between protecting your environment or making money. You can do both. That's the beauty of it. Like you can do less yard work and help the environment. some birds okay so try and find out what they are <laughs> well i heard a crow earlier did you that, hear that? was the easy one okay <laughs> come on now, now let's speak about <laughs> the other birds i was very proud of myself with the crow uh i know okay cicadas okay cicadas fine. but they're not birds i can hear 
the tufted titmouse in the background, but far away this very high-pitched sound, that's the tufted titmouse. Huh. Uh, this morning Ooh, there was Did you a... hear that? It's like an owl? No, that's not an owl. What is it? <laughs> what was that? That is, that's the morning dove. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, Still, yeah. Um, I get half a point. But at least you... Well, yes, it was a bird. Okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> But, but a commoner, I would assume. It's definitely a commoner. Yeah. Uh, and this, this morning there was a house finch singing. Hmm. Very few birds keep singing in, uh, in uh, mid-July, late-July, but uh, the house finch was singing. Hmm. And uh, as you can see, the mockingbird is inspecting. Oh, yeah, he's he's he watching is. us. He doesn't like us to be here. You, just like you said, he would be yeah, 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 of defending course. his and territory. And of course he's defending his territory. He's standing and, on the corner And of he has the this, this old habit, so every evening at five o'clock when the, the crows come back from whatever they were doing, he will attack them. Oh. And it's like an old couple fighting. You know, you, you know at five o'clock they're going to fight here in the airspace. I feel like I've heard that from my house. It's like I'm a sure. little... Yeah, yeah. A, a sort I'm of sure. skirmish every night. You see, that was, uh, that was one of the morning doves. Okay. It just flew by. No, it's gone already. <laughs> what do you call a group of crows again? A murder. A murder. I love that. A murder of crows. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, no, that's probably a morning dove. Morning that's dove. a dove. Yeah. Yeah, he's a sentinel. He's he's got your back. This guy. So we had this. Uh, we organized uh, in March, uh, April, a biodiversity month. So we had a special envoy Kerry explaining to the uh, diplomatic community what the plans of the administration are for the COP27. Hmm. And then we had a whole series, one on birds, one on insects, one on water, every time with some of the most amazing specialists. Wow. And the evening when we had the birders, so all the crazy birders of the area, yeah. we were gathered on the terrace and for the first time ever, since I'm here, we had a bald eagle, an adult bald eagle, flying at eye level. He flew here. Oh my gosh. And we're all watching the bald eagle. Because normally if you see it around here, it would be way from, up high. You know, way yeah. up high. And he just flew here. Probably he knew that all the birders were there. <laughs> it's like you planned. I do assume, yeah. And that night we also saw a common nighthawk, which I had never seen. Seems like you are the Forrest Gump of birds. Like you are wherever the interesting birds are. Birding is like a box of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what you're going to see. <laughs> so. Thank you so much for inviting us into your home and showing us all that you've done. And it is truly an inspiration and a, a kind of oasis. So thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you for having me. Thank you to Ambassador Jacques Pitlou for inviting us over and even sending us home with a sample of his in-demand DC honey. Make sure you listen to last week's episode with Doug Tallamy on the simple steps you can take in your own backyard. Speaking of, after last week's show, we actually got a few listener notes we wanted to share. 
The first is from Kelly. She says, if Judy is looking to attract hummingbirds, there are actually better plants than trumpet honeysuckle. She also says the magnolia is a good choice. They do get large, but grow slowly. And she loves herself an evergreen broadleaf tree. So there you go. We also got a note from Bernie, who has been transforming their yard into a bird and pollinator sanctuary for five years now conducting daily insect observations and iNaturalist postings and has spotted north of 500 different insect species so far. Very cool. What about you? Do you have a problem that feels enormous but still needs to be tackled one plant at a time? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. And we might have you on the show. Finally, one last note before we leave you for the week. We are aware, as you probably are, that it's been just about a year since the United States left Afghanistan and the Taliban swept into Kabul. If you haven't heard it already, we wanted to make sure you knew about an episode that we ran a few months ago about how to really help refugees. This is an episode that is near and dear to my heart after having spent months for a political story following a very unusual group of female Afghan soldiers who have been relocated to the United States. I learned so many things from this experience, and one of the most important things I learned was how important it is to listen to refugees themselves and the people who are working closely with them to understand what they need most and what they definitely don't need. So we wanted to let you know that that episode called How to Really Help Refugees is linked in the show notes. I hope you're able to give it a listen if you haven't already. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson produced this episode with help from Madeline Ducharme and Katie Shepard. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Charles Duhigg created this show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening. Now most of the chicks are out of the different uh, bird species, meaning, meaning uh, that the parents now have a dull plumage and they don't sing anymore because they, they, they have no reason to endanger themselves. You see, so, so, so right now it's not to be, except of course from my resident mockingbird that is here. And as soon as we'll get out, he will come and inquire. But he doesn't like anyone to be on his territory. He's attacking, he's attacking every bird coming into the bed. So, so uh, he's quite territorial. Yeah.